Welcome. My name is Alexander Asvarich, and this is La Ponderie, the podcast about the cultural and creative scene in the city of Paris. That's right. We've been off the air for a while, but now we're back just in time for the holiday season. As always, I had the privilege to sit down with some truly passionate people for a chat about how they approach their craft, the meaning of creative integrity, and why good quality matters. Enjoy. My guest this week is Deborah Newberg, the founder and creative director of the brand De Bon Facture. Deborah and I talk about the complexity of sustainability within fashion, why she decided to be transparent with her manufacturing partners and actively promote them, and why it's important to get to know and respect the people who model her clothing. And uh, we are recording. Deborah, finally, we made it happen. Uh, I think we've tried to make this podcast happen in possibly almost a year at this yeah. point. Uh, but um, we're here, and it's great. We're here in your new uh, office slash atelier showroom and shop. So it's your own little universe. Um, thank you very much for having me. Thanks for having me. Yeah. No, <laughs> Thanks for your patience. Yeah, well, my pleasure. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Um, I think we'll just uh, jump straight into it. Um, if uh, people don't already know you, uh, you are the creative director and founder of uh, De Bon Facture, uh, which you started nine years ago yeah. on your own. Uh, previous, for that you, previous to that, you were working at Hermes. Yes. Uh, and um, so I think if if you would, if if you like to, uh, if you could elaborate a little bit on on. Um, i mean, to a lot of people in the creative industry, working at Almes would be, you know, sort of the, the top of of, uh, of the top, basically. So, what made you, you know, start there and and and, and I mean, start your own brand? What was the uh, sort of motivation behind it? Um, yeah. So the motivation uh, behind leaving was that I was doing a, a maternity leave replacement mm -hmm. at the silk uh, accessories department. And um, I did it for one year. Um, and I, I, when I talked to the HR at Elmes, they told me that because I wanted to do something more entrepreneurial and being in charge of my own projects, but I was really, really young. Mm. And that was not uh, the way it worked in a big company. Conservative. It was more structured. So they told me that if I wanted some more agency, I should go to a more middle range company and work there for a few years and come back later at Hermes um, when, you know, I'd be more uh, advanced in my career, but that they didn't really, the way it was structured didn't enable people to have like Yeah, agency on their projects at a young age. More freedom. More freedom, yeah. yeah. So I I took their advice and I applied to a job at a big um, retail chain that's French uh, and that sells um, underwear that's mm -hmm. very access price and made in China and in I think now it's also Vietnam, Bangladesh, so in you know, developing countries. Um, and I joined this company and I moved to China to work on this. Oh, really? Yes. I didn't know. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and when I was there, I um, worked, so I, I um, saw a lot of Chinese manufacturers, uh, especially so for lingerie and nightwear. And I was working with a lot of uh, synthetic and artificial materials on very complicated products, even though they were access price because like women's lingerie is quite complicated to make. Um, and I, I think I, I was very uh, sensitive to the working conditions of the people um, who were in the factories. And it, there was a start at the time, it was maybe uh, 12 years ago or 13 years ago. Um, maybe 12 years ago. No, yeah. Um, there was a start of, you know, um, global certifications on factories and all that, but it wasn't like sustainability and all that wasn't as advanced, I guess. Um, and so I had this really strong reaction to the way things were there, um, which made me leave this job after a year and made me want to start my own thing. Um, all the more so as I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. Um, and I went to business school and did an entrepreneurship major. But it was really those experiences that led me to, you know, try it out. Um, and yeah, I've learned a lot from both of these experiences and all, I've had also other experiences before uh, in the industry. But basically that's what led me to try to start my own thing and especially try to find makers that were regional in France. Um, and then I did a bit in England uh, for some scarves and um, now we work also with the north of Italy and a bit with Portugal uh, in the region of Porto. But it was always with the idea of picking specialized ateliers with uh, regional craftsmanships and yeah, a high level of quality and be perfectly transparent on the makers, which I thought was something that I've, I would have liked to see in the companies I worked with before starting the Bonfecture. Um, because for like beautiful luxury houses, of course they work with the most qualified artisans internationally. Um, and I just always thought it was a shame not to be transparent and show those units of production that are many times independent, uh, subcontractors of big houses or, or, or big companies with a high level of uh, know-how, but people don't really know where it's made or who these people are or, you know, if they're more of a, of a you know, big factory doing a lot of different things or if they're a more specialized um, unit. Um, an atelier, and I really liked that vision of the maker and atelier that's in tailoring, and especially men's tailoring, uh, where there's a real knowledge of, you know, the people um, who, who are interested in menswear of the actual factories or makers, and I, I think I wanted to bring that to... Um, something that's like, in French, I say like petite industrie, so it's not like large scale uh, manufacturing, but it's more like small scale manufacturing for a niche audience 
and considered clothing. It's not like made to measure the commune tailoring, but it's kind of with the same. No, but you have a much more intimate relationship with your manufacturers because yes. quite often it would be family-run business or yes. something like that. And it's, it's interesting that we briefly touched upon this uh, in our chat yesterday. Um, I mean, the fact that you are transparent about all the ateliers you use, uh, and which I find very refreshing because, I mean, as someone who has started or tried to start their own brand on, on numerous occasions, the most difficult thing is to find proper ateliers to work with. And, and, and I mean, uh, traditionally speaking, I, I think, you know, people have kept their manufacturers secret because they are afraid of competition, whereas you seem to be really happy to share it and potentially even to have, um, I mean, other people yeah. reach out to them and, and, you know, provide even more business for that's, them and sustain them as a company for the future. Yeah, that's the idea because, um, of course, working with Hermes, um, they own a far, like, a fairly big part of their manufacturing. Yeah, I think, yeah 15 um, separate ateliers or something like that. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, but they have other parts that are outsourced. But of course, owning the makers, you you know, you have control on that. But in France, uh, in the last 30 years, there has been a huge uh, disindustrialization of manufacturing, and so the fact that they're not known is actually, you know, making them much more vulnerable mm. because if it's there are many um, issues related to that. First of all, made in France as a label is not really um, connected to the actual, you know, 100% French manufacturing. It can be a part of the added value of the product um, that is given to the product, and you can put the made in France legally, even if it's been cut in Poland and uh, like half assembled in Lithuania, but you're doing just like one or two, one or two little um, finishing touches, finishing touches in Paris or France, and but it has a certain percentage of the added value because of the price you pay on that you'll be able to put the made in france label so it's for me it's uh, a loss of integrity mm. uh, in the way that we are related to the maker in our relationship to the garment that we produce or that we buy as consumers so for me, this transparency was a way to guarantee some form of integrity and say, this was made there in this city or in this, you know, locality and in this country and by this maker. Mm. So it's it's a way to guarantee yeah, more honesty and integrity because when you look at the way the, the um, industrialization of fashion and all of the... Um, um, how do you say delocalization? Um, delocalization. De de I think there might be another word, but yeah, <laughs> delocalizations uh, have been done. So this has made uh, the industry very complex and not as um, you know easily readable as you know I would like it to be um, for everyone who's, um, you know, uh, involved in the garments, you know, the creative, the, the brand, um, the distribution, the consumers, you know, it can be very 
um, how can I say, morcelé. Uh, my English is so low today. I'm so tired. I didn't sleep very well. <laughs> no worries. Um, like in a lot of little parts, as opposed to having integrity. Mm. As in, you order the fabric somewhere, and you know you cut it and you make it in the same place. So, so I was looking for that. I was looking for that kind of intimate link to the maker that's you know so important in tailoring and in menswear. Um, and I was looking to get a little bit more nuanced and uh, fine, fine-tuned than th this made in France label that doesn't mean anything to mm. me. Like made in doesn't mean anything to me because um, legally it's not, the, the conditions to get it are not, you know, perfectly fair, fair yeah. for me. And also because I don't believe in um, countries as like national entities. I don't believe in nationalism. So I don't really like this kind of like made there, made in this country, you know, made in Italy, made in France, like, oh, our flag, I hate that. I hate mm. flags, all flags. Um, and I, I think in the, in the desire that some brands and designers and companies in general, in their desire to relocalize um, their production, there's been a lot of nationalism and some, some um, also like, political implications to that, mm. that for me joins um, a very nationalist mind frame as we have seen in the US with like Make America Great Again, mm. Made in USA, and everything that we know about brands like New Balance and all that, we're supporting Trump. Um, and there, I, there, there are some brands and some ways of seeing the world that are connected um, to that and it's a shame so I think it's great to relocalize but I don't think it's great to do it with this nationalist mind frame mm. but I suppose that still there is a must be a part of you that feel that I mean in, in regards to the integrity and also another thing that we touched about uh, talked about yesterday is I mean the idea of sustainability I mean obviously a lot of people people's um, um, relates that to the environment which is obviously also relevant but but whereas there is also an element of sustainability in sustaining local production in yes. france and i mean you you I, I, so i suppose you do see a value in 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 the local production and also i mean first and foremost sustaining the industry in france but also that um, that france can offer a certain level of quality which which i mean is is, well, is also great that's where i think um it's it's great that france is associated to a high level of quality and that the image of france is like that but in fact in france you can find many different levels of quality mm -hmm. as in all countries in china you can find exquisite craftsmanship um and you know in bulgaria too and you know anywhere actually um and so I, I, I think uh, a part of me, of course, thinks it's great to relocalize. And, you know, um, the fact of, you know, taking jobs away from people who are qualified to, you know, make it cheaper and, you know, make your margin bigger. Mm. I think I'm, I'm opposed to that. Of course. Yeah. But I'm, I don't think making in France, um, um, you know, entails necessarily better level of quality mm -hmm. and in fact 
this is something that we are, um, you know, struggling against um, because with all these delocalizations, um, a lot of craftsmanship has been lost in France. So even if there's an image of quality, sometimes a lot of the craftsmanship, the machines, the people who were, you know, um, depositaries of this craft didn't have anyone to pass it on to. And so we have this problem that there are not enough people in France who want to work in production and manufacturing, mm -hmm. and that some of it has been lost, and this needs to be reconstructed. And we are uh, a company, because we make uh, a lot in France, who is part of a program to push that and push the industry um, to you know, try to get more young people involved in the uh, trade of manufacturing. And yeah, it's, it's really something that's been destroyed and has to be rebuilt. And that's why I think it's important to be transparent so these people can get more, you know, more work. Mm -hmm. um, and I also believe in a more collaborative way of seeing our industry. And I think um, it's also a feminist way of seeing the world that I gained through uh, learning and studying feminism is that we don't have to be in this competitive uh, mind frame to all succeed. Mm. Yeah. But um, in, I mean, I think in re regards to the idea of, of um, like the loss of jobs in, in, in manufacturing in, in France, I also think it's a it's a very much like a, a, a sociological thing in in Western countries that all of a sudden these sort of manual labor things are looked down upon as being sort of second grade yeah. uh, jobs. Whereas actually, I mean, it's something you can excel at, even if it is not necessarily haute couture. You can still be the one that great makes the greatest T-shirts. Yeah. I mean, and and you can take pride in that. So I think, see if you can if, if like. Com contributing to reinstalling sort of that pride in in in, uh, in local manufacturing, even if it isn't top luxury, I think it's a, I mean it's a great mission, so to speak, right? Yeah, the the French Federation of Ready to Wear is working on that, and there is also a, an industry committee with a, a different people from different brands who are um, you know very. Um, eager on that and who are working on that but it also I think like that would touch on a more uh, large like a larger subject which is um, how workers have been treated mm. working conditions in factories since the industrial revolution and why you know what are the conditions um, within which a worker can actually take pride in their work yeah. and be correctly paid Mm. Um, and you know, why why did this disconnect happen between you know jobs and pride and the feeling of accomplishment? Uh, I think, well, we all know what uh, you know Fordism and and industrialization did to you know actually mastering a product from beginning to end. So if you're doing a very repetitive task all day long, whereas before you could actually conceive the whole garment, for mm. example, in manufacturing, well, it becomes a little more difficult to be passionate about I was, your process. It was one of the things, so I, I, I worked in India for a year mm -hmm. in, in, a, in a very large uh, tailoring factory, and I think um, you, there's definitely a lot of things there that wouldn't be, I mean, I, I would never consider great uh, 
conditions. But one thing that I think they did well was they made sure to rotate people around the factory. Yeah. So as you say, each people like you you would you would have a different task like every week, for instance, and you would also master that. So in the end, if you had to make a garment from start to finish, you would actually be able to it. And I think, as you say, then it's much more motivating. To, yeah, to I work think. on, on produ- if it's if it's more fast-paced production, that uh, is something definitely something that I think can help. Um, another point that I thought is interesting is uh, where I find you to be a pretty unique brand uh, within the niche is that um, when we when we talked about like again the label made in France, uh, a lot of people would associate that with a, a house like Almes, for instance, which is obviously like the epitome of, of, of luxury and all of the, I mean, very, very high prices, where, uh, I mean, you are in a much more sort of uh, attainable price range. Yeah. Uh, so w- why did you, do, like, I mean, when you start your own brand, you can decide to be whatever you want, basically. I mean, yeah. so, so why, why was it that you decided to fall within... Um, this range. Yeah, this, this price range. Well, uh, I, I think we... Maybe touch on it yesterday, but I was very, um, you know, my attitude to product and manufacturing was shaped by my experiences um, at Hermes, but also for this big uh, retail chain. But at the same time, on the French level, when I came back to France after this experience in Shanghai, I was seeing all of these traditional stores like uh, Olenz Ecossaise and Old England Mm -hmm. that were closing. Unfortunately, yeah. And that were exactly this type of offer that is kind of brandless. Not, they're not brands like logo-typed brands. They're very uh, anchored. Sorry? And very subtle. Very subtle, very anchored in the product, in the fabric, in the making. And it's not as important the name of the brand than all the process and the product. Um, and they're not cheap, but not unattainable. Mm. So I think I wanted to make something like that and to continue that kind of range um, within my my endeavor. That's really what I was trying to do um, because I was so sad that this culture of products um, and particularly those French, um, you know, beacons of product for and French menswear also because it's very connected to a specific type of, I'd say, like Parisian maybe or French um, way of dressing, and notably that was passed on by my father mm-hmm. um, to me. Um, this kind of attention to quality and I was seeing all this disappear in the industry I'm passionate about which is um, textile and and clothing um, and so that's that's on this kind of level I wanted to be at mm. so, so you would he you would consider him your biggest sort of influence also maybe the reason why you as a woman decided to do menswear or is there any other motivation behind that um, I think it's very, it's very, I'm always asked this question. I think like no, not a single man is asked this question, who does women's wear? 
It no. never happens that we ask men why they're designing women's wear? I only relate it to my own point of view because I've, through my years of designing, I've figured out that I'm only really interested in designing things that I can wear myself. Me too. <laughs> Which is, well, yeah, true. So, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, we, I guess we're also approaching, uh, uh, I mean, uh, or we are in an area era where, I mean, you can wear whatever you want. And I mean, I feel even if you want to be, I mean, more traditionally feminine, you can really still do that while wearing men's garments. Maybe yeah. it's, a, it's an issue maybe of styling, yeah. how you put your things together and, and, and that as well. So I, I still think it's, 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 a, it's an interesting aspect of it to I it's mean, very, at least contemplate it. It's very interesting and it's, it's very complex. And the more I think about it, the less I understand it in mm -hmm. a way. Um, but. I think uh, for sure the, the way my father dressed and uh, some of the, the ideas he taught me regarding, um, you know, the way of buying things in general, um, anything uh, like food or um, clothing or, um, you know, even um, something for the home. Um, was in an idea of quality and uh, and of investing in something good that will last. So I think that's something for sure my father taught me and that inspired me. And of course, on these, this kind of clothing, I've always been very kind of um, sensitive to it. You know, good fabrics, um, these kinds of stores that I'm talking about. Um, and all of these menswear fabrics have always really appeared, appealed to me. Um, but then, yeah, for sure, my, my father was a big influence in my life. So, so in, in that sense, you felt yourself being more drawn to a good classic men's overcoat as opposed to like a traditionally feminine flowing dress or whatever I mean um, I've I've worn all, all of those dresses honestly um, but as a designer I and later in my in affirming myself although I have different styles and my friends were joking about this last time because <laughs> some when I go to work I'm always dressed in not always but mainly dressed in the bonfecture but on other occasions, I'm, I can be super feminine, mm. and it's funny um, because I don't think, I mean, some people have like one specific style they kind of uh, um, express, and some people have different facets of themselves and different styles, and I think it's cool. I mean, either way, of course, it's, it's cool, and it depends on, you know, the way you evolve in your perception to yourself, what you want to project to the world, you know, your ethics of buying too. There's many things that are involved. The industry you work in, you know, there's so many, so many components to it. But um, yeah, in I think I could also design women's wear, but like traditional mm -hmm. type of uh, t a traditional type of women's wear. But in all of this kind of project that I've been building with the manufacturer and the makers and the tailoring, kind of soft tailoring and, you know, these classics, French classics that we are doing in a contemporary way, it, it was very related to menswear for me mm. in the way I perceived it. I get it. I, um, so uh, another thing, 
Um, we briefly looked through the collection yesterday, and obviously, it's, it's you have a very clear aesthetic at this point. Oh, you think so? I, I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. both in regards to, I mean, obviously, it's very obvious that you are a very keen and 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 observant in regards to which kind of cloth you use yeah. and fabric you use, textures, weights, drape, and and which is obviously a major part. And I mean, especially in in menswear because it tends to be a little bit more. Uh, in terms of in regards to silhouette, a little bit more restricted as opposed to, let's say, women's wear, where you can work with large volumes and such, right? Uh, and at the same, uh, in the same regards to um, to uh, your color palette, right? Um, so, um, have, and I mean, uh, I've seen I've seen the collection grow, but I I feel like that aesthetic has been pretty consistent from the very beginning, basically up until now so that was something that was like fully formed in your head before you you started um i think i i was so confused in the beginning because i had like i had a lot of ideas that because i'm very analytical and i maybe a bit less today but i i think a lot and um i think i had many ideas that were uh contradictory in mm -hmm. my head and so I was a bit paralyzed in the beginning because I wanted to do kind of old school fabrics. Um, but I also wanted to do something that's very like you can wear in the city, mm -hmm. but making it in the countryside with kind of or in these regions or small family owned makers that are not necessarily Parisian. So I didn't I was like, but how do I make something that makes sense if it's like old old school style, but I want it to be modern, but I want it to be, um, you know, understood by younger people, but also older people who like quality. And I want it to be um, Parisian, but also, uh, you know, be able to exist in close to the localities where it's made. And I was just like, it's impossible. Mm. How do I make that happen? Like, I want it to be classic, but I also want it to be kind of uh, edgy, Japanese, kind of artisan, wabi-sabi. So I was like, how do I do this? Because the Italian fabrics are so, um, you know, uh, kind of flat, more mm -hmm. flat. And the Japanese fabrics are more like textured. And I want to find this and that. And I was so confused in my mind. And then maybe... I had enough thinking and I let go and started just like doing stuff and doing stuff, it started to build. And from the fact that I was designing it, it had like some form of consistency mm -hmm. because, you know, like maybe there's a part of me that knows what I want to do. Um, but yeah, it's, it wasn't, it wasn't, I had all these ideas, but I was very confused at the same time. I can't say it was so formed than that but it was more by the process of doing it and letting go of all my fears that I started like making it and that it 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 seemed like I knew what I was doing mm -hmm. excellent so now we're sitting in your relatively new headquarters so to speak wow headquarters yes let's call multinational it multinational <laughs> oh, uh, space showroom atelier yeah. slash shop um, so the brand is growing. You just did a lovely uh, collaboration or exclusive collection for Mr. Porter as well. Yes. And uh, so um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what is the like, what is the ambitions like for the if you've 
I mean, even have put some thought into that of, of what you would like to see, where you would like to see the brand go in, let's say, the next 10 years? So, um, There are many things. Um, there are some creative ideas uh, related to, like, folklore mm -hmm. that I want to explore to, like, define our style even better and I think we started doing it with the Mr. Porter collaboration because it's very connected to the Black Mountain yeah, region exactly, yeah. and and there there's this also visual of that the Black Mountain but I think I'm very interested in all those like folkloric uh, animals and legends that are mm -hmm. in regions it's part of like my anti-nationalist philosophy mm -hmm. um, and anti-colonialist, by the way, is that uh, even in France, but everywhere, um, in France, uh, there are a lot of, you know, different cultures um, corresponding to different regions. And there are different uh, plants that grow in different regions and different um, dialects that have been spoken that have mainly disappeared through you know this the way the state was formed and nationalism um, and there's been a lot of erasure of these folkloric elements that are for me so important to the way we were built as you know people like re related to um, the the earth as of course, like the planet and all, like everything we're talking about today about, you know, environmentalism. But if we look at it from a more cultural point of view, um, there's a way of, you know, respecting the land and the way of growing things in this land and the way of living together on it and the myths and legends that are connecting us. And there is something about that that I want to bring in the bonne facture. Mm -hmm. um, also related to, we're doing something else with Mr. Porter for next season. And maybe I can't really, I don't know when this is coming out, <laughs> but I've been researching a lot of things from French folkloric textiles and realizing the history of those textiles and how it's linked to colonization mm. and some kind of appropriation of techniques or visuals. And yeah, I've been wanting to work on that kind of like traditional element to craftsmanship and clothing. And where do those fabric come from and where where do those designs come from? And, you know, I don't know. I just, I want to... Dig deeper. Dig deeper. Into the history of all of that. And I mean, I guess that's an element that, um, that, that people don't really... Um, I mean, think about that much. I mean, they, 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 they think about, I mean, certain aspects of French or Italian or English culture, but they don't really... Like, what happens if you look back 200 or 150 years? Like, I mean, they were surely inspired by something and not necessarily within their own borders, right? Yeah, so, that's what's interesting. It's 
some sometimes uh, I was talking about that to Derek from Die Workwear. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes there, I mean, there've always been exchanges of goods and you know commerce in so many civilizations. So that's very interesting, um, and we've always. That's the project I'm working on for Mr. Porter, and that's going to come out in a few months. Is really related to that, to exchanges like something from another culture through contact with this culture, even though in that case it was brutal. Mm. But that becomes like the fabric of another, like that yeah, enters yeah. our fabric. Of no, but culture. everyone is influenced by each other. I mean, and and I think, um, as you say, like if you go back to like if it could be the age of exploration, even though I mean, in our day, our, the point of view, I mean, it was it was a brutal time, and obviously, I, you probably wouldn't want to live during those years. But depends on, on, on what side you are, I guess. Sure. <laughs> uh, on on the other side, though, I mean, the that idea of going to somewhere that's entirely unexplored and just taking in completely new visuals and information and bringing them back and interpreting them on your own and I mean I, I think we have seen that even in recent years I mean if you go back let's say to the 70s and you saw the influx of Japanese designers coming to Paris bringing part of their heritage and the, their way of doing things but kind of mixing them with European couture yeah. the couture tradition and you look at if it's uh, Kenzo or Ismiyaki or whatever, and you look at, or I mean, Reikakupu of Conte Gazon today, I mean, you see some of the, what I feel like is the most authentic uh, creations coming through that period. So I really feel like there's a potential for something really rich and profound if you if you understand in, in, in doing it without culturally a, a Appropriate, yeah, that's, it, right? that's really interesting. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's really important to have this conversation about cultural appropriation because I think a lot of times people don't really realize it. Like they don't even know um, that what they're using um, has not been, you know, properly paying the culture that they're, you know, using it from or in another way that... Um, people who have been colonized adopt uh, um, an aesthetic in politics uh, that were not from their own, you know, um, you know, end up losing a part of themselves in that process. So I think it's it's interesting to, to think about the ways of this has shaped us, and I think it's a really important conversation to have. Relating to France, I think a good way of decolonizing um, French identity from itself, you know, within the French borders, so to say, um, is to come back to these folkloric elements and to the regions. For instance, that's why I've been so adamant on working with uh, local wolves from French local sheep, which was so difficult to find. And mm. we've had to find, and this was part of the Mr. Porter uh, Montagne Noir collaboration because the guy who was doing these kind of um, local French wool that are a little rustic but like super qualitative uh, was in this region, in the Mazame region that is very connected to sheep and, uh, you know, shepherds and um, everything that's, you know, around sheep, wool and leather and, you know, cheese and everything, uh, milk. Um, you know, 
the, the fact of working with kind of heritage fabrics that are from a region is really interesting to, you know, um, kind of decentralize where we get our fabrics from and think about how some lands produce specific fabrics and how we can use those. For instance, we also did uh, linen that, are, that is cultivated in the north of France and I went to meet some of the cultivators and of the sketchers who uh, transform the plant into uh, yarn. Mm -hmm. Not the actual yarn, but the yeah, raw material, flex. The, oh, flex, flex, yeah. the flex, just before they make the yarn. And so, yeah, I started getting really, really interested in all that. And now I want to like add this kind of more uh, pattern-based um, element that's inspired by folk cultures. Mm -hmm. It's, I mean, it, it's really interesting to see, uh, look back, I mean, especially in regards to like fabric manufacturing in France, because it used to be uh, a very rich uh, yeah. industry and now there's very few. Um, but in regards to linen, I know there's a, a relatively new brand that started called Maison Eillard. Uh, okay. And they, they use French linen. They have it woven in Italy, though. Mm -hmm. But uh, but again, it's uh, and it's interesting to see. It's very hard to weave it in France. Our yeah. weaver is in Belgium. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because I guess they still have an industry of weaving because of uh, I mean, Belgian canvas and Belgian linens. They and do. Like there's also there's a tradition of weaving linen and cotton linen in the Vosges mm -hmm. uh, mountains in the east of France, um, but this has disappeared a lot. Um, but yeah, there's, this region was specialized in something called Métis, which was a mixing, like a mixing of uh, cotton and linen, and the, it was connected to where the linen was grown and how it was uh, spun and then woven there. But this is like all the stuff that needs to be rebuilt, hmm. even though... The yeah, but it's an entire infrastructure, you know? Yeah. Especially when you're working with natural fabrics because you have the... It's agriculture yes. in, in regards to linen, and then it's the refining of the of the fiber. Then it's yes. the weaving of the fiber, and, and it's so it, there's so many steps, and it's really like when that's lost, it's a it's a major challenge. I, I, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah, and it's I, I really like this connection you made uh, between because we don't we're so used to seeing clothing uh, with the lens of fashion that mm. we forget that clothing comes from agriculture. Mm. And in the case of all the synthetic materials and artificial materials, it comes from actually um, petrol and, uh, you know, um, all this petroleum industry yeah. and, you know, going very deep in the earth um, with aggressive methods and chemically transforming this raw material into uh, yarn and, and fabrics. And we forget the relationship to, you know, uh, the raw material, we, we forget where it comes from, and I think it's really important to build this consciousness. Mm. And I mean, I, I think it's also just, a, I mean, it's been a, a, a lack of education throughout the last few generations where all of a sudden people don't really know. I mean, uh, if you go out to the common man or woman in the street and ask what kind of fabric are you wearing right now, they'll probably not really know about it, or worse, maybe not even care, right? And and as you say, but then if you try to in a in a mean in a in 
in a in a pedagogy or in a, in a in a way to sort of educate them without being too pushy about the fact that you're wearing petroleum based fabric i mean i think a lot of people wouldn't really like that idea right yeah and or I plastic mean, because it's plastic yeah. but and then all the people are talking about oh I'm, fe i'm feeling so hot in this sweater yeah it's because it's polyester right yeah <laughs> if it was like wool or cotton it would it would, it would be much different nicer, right but uh a lot of people are also uh concerned about the mistreatment of animals mm. and um some of also the ecological impacts of overgrowing cotton um on on you know the planet and so they will give that as an argument to be wearing plastic so i think in order to deter people from wearing plastic we need to build also healthier uh industries of, of cotton mm. uh, notably and stop also um you know animal animal cruelty practices that exist um you know, for animal-based fabrics like wool, for example. Mm. So that's something that at the Benfecture, you know, we're committed to. We don't, we can't succeed on all of the clothes, but we're really committed to that um, because my my commitment is using natural fabrics. Mm. So, you know, vegan people who don't want to, you know, uh, consume or wear anything that's uh, related to animal exploitation will prefer to wear plastic. So, but then they could they could wear cotton or linen. I mean, it's uh, cotton or linen. Yes, yeah, it so. would be wool. Yeah. Um, but I mean, an argument to wearing, like for example, uh, because um, when you're wearing, uh, for example, fleece mm -hmm. or something warm, it's hard to do it without wool. Mm -hmm. So they will wear plastic. And ah, I, un yeah. I understand the argument of you know there's animal cruelty. So then, in my kind of ethics, I think we should work on finding sources of fabrics that are not made with this animal cruelty so it's a it's big big work and i mean in regards to let's say so for instance if we talk about wool in general the majority would be i mean either new zealand or australian wool so like really sheep that's like on the other side of the world right yes. and in many cases you wouldn't have a chance to go and see under which condition this is yes. produced whereas like if it's within france it's easily to take a car or you can yeah. you can really be there and, yeah, and I mean, be hands-on during the process and another element in that is also is we, if we're talking about sustainability is just in regards to transportation i yes. mean everything is within reach uh, and uh, as opposed to everything being flown or shipped yes. across the world so so that's a, 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 another element that needs to be considered but i mean it's just, it's just when you really go into it there's it's so, so many elements I agree. that need that could be considered and because you know. then even if in the you know um how can i say la filière amont so the um before the product is made and distributed mm -hmm. there are so many complex issues but then once it's made for example our product appeals to some french people but because this you know kind of philosophy that's close to lindsay says and all that has been quite lost um people go more to brands or to fast fashion and so they don't understand our product or our price point um and then we appeal to a more international audience so we're shipping stuff even if we make it locally here and that we're better in our carbon footprint just in all the way it's made then when we actually sell it we sell it far so, so we so have a carbon uh, yeah so we also need to build up uh, our local consumers but 
we find that they might not be interested uh, in this work or uh, that the, the uh, sensitiveness that um, maybe Japanese um, people or uh, Italian or English um, people in tailoring and menswear is not always shared in France by Frenchmen. I, I mean, it is, it is quite remarkable, the Japanese customer, how, how um, I mean, it really seems like their consumer culture is much more open and without any kind of real social pressure. I mean, there's so many small niches of, of people that's really passionate about it, whether yeah. that's like American vintage workwear yeah. or bespoke tailoring, mm -hmm. or as you say, uh, eco-friendly manufacturing and such. There's, the, the Japanese are, uh, are fascinating in that way because they they dive so deep into their, to, yeah. to their interests in a way. And that's the same, you, you can really kind of sense that, I mean, even if you go to like a really good sushi restaurant. It's a similar mindset, you know, finding something very particular and then really nerding yeah. out on it until you really kind of reach uh, uh, the top, so to speak. Uh, but I mean, um, f finally, maybe what we could, uh, what we could have a little uh, talk about is, is um, I would say more sort of um, brand building. I mean, obviously, there we've had a lot of uh, we talked a lot about that already from an, uh, from the uh, sustainability point of view, the fabric, the local productions, and such. Uh, one thing that I saw uh, that you teased for recently is that you've made a movie now. Yeah, we did a short movie. Yeah, uh, and and do you mind telling me a little bit about why? I mean, I totally understand why that would be amazing from a I mean a brand communication kind of standpoint. But I mean, what led you to that? And and uh, yeah, yeah, I'll tell you. Um, what led me to that is that I have this really strong urge to uh, talk about models as people, mm. and that comes also from of my feminist learning um, and my thinking about the objectification of bodies in our industry. Um, that's something that doesn't really concern, um, you know, like sartorial menswear as much as, you know, like mainstream fashion and feminine fashion mm. in general. But I think also in some more like fashion-based or more mainstream menswear, we're also touching on, on this subject of how do we treat uh, the models um, who actually model um, clothing. And a lot of times I feel like uh, this is shaped by the male gaze mm -hmm. and, um, you know, stuff related to objectification. And did you see uh, Emily uh, Ratajkowski just wrote a book called My Body? Uh, no, I don't know. You know who she is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. definitely, yeah. She wrote, she, I just finished her book yesterday when I was on an endless sleepless night as, mm. as often. Uh, and she talks about that, like, her relationship to her body, sexualization, objectification, etc., etc., which I'm really interested in. I'm interested in, in kind of undoing all that. Or thinking about it and um, in that case I was just like we you know we have a worn by section where our friends wear the benfecture and we kind of like tell their story or they can write an essay and it's just like them in clothes that they picked and yeah like it's our editorial section but I felt like the stories 
of our models who actually model the lookbooks are not told and I wanted to connect the collection concept to the actual person who was wearing it. So I wanted to tell Arnaud's story. Um, and I discovered Arnaud, well I picked Arnaud because he was a photographer with a beautiful mindset. He was also featured in Decent magazine which is a menswear magazine created by women with a feminist point of view and you know exploring issues about masculinity and um, so many issues about masculinity and he was featured in that so I was like wow that's a sign I should be working with this person and then when we met I had these, this idea of creating this short movie about him and his sister um, because he is half Chinese and French uh, and he, he, his grandparents, he both lived in China and in France and now lives in London and he, he had a family home, his grandparents' home, two hours away from Paris and the idea was to tell this story with Joe Ridoux who, who directed it um, and it was really part of going, going in his story and showing him as a person. So. Basically, it's very simple, but the thinking behind it wasn't that simple. But it was going also in his family memories and, you know, talking about this idea of transmission and of land and connection or disconnection to land or feeling from a place in different places at the same time, which is something I feel connected to because of my family history and, you know, uh, yeah, history in general of my people. Um, so... Yeah, it was a beautiful encounter between him and me and the director and Hugo, also Hugo Cohen, who, who filmed it because it was during COVID, so the director couldn't be there to film it. Oh, so okay. Hugo filmed it and the director directed it and um, set it up. And I, because it was COVID and it was such an, an uncertain time, I was kind of like, I want to make the maximum stuff I can that inspires me while this still lasts because mm. I didn't know what was going to happen no. to the brand or to me um, in this situation. And so I was like, let's do this. And this is how it happened. I mean, I think it's, um, it, it's, it's great to hear because I feel, I've, for me, we, we had the chat yesterday about uh, like... Uh, um, like a brand brand news a brand news and i mean i think you see more brands at least within like the the um, the menswear niche that starts to use people more for the sake of their internal values mm -hmm. rather than how they look and i mean it's um as opposed to like if you look at like the, the big brand houses here as i say like all they're really all they're using as like brand representation is Uh, actors or singers or 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 influencers. I mean, and I'm not looking down on them, but it's just a lot of it is like face value. It's like how they look, how they sing, and not so much about their philo like philosophy of living. Or I mean, and maybe very probably, if um, you know the brands would care to tell their story, mm -hmm. they would find interesting stuff. Yeah, for sure. Because You know, like, for instance, I was reading the profile um, in The New Yorker of uh, Adam Driver, mm -hmm. you know? And it's like, okay, well, he he's a particular guy, so we, we can all feel that. But, you know, 
it was just telling his story from a really deep point of view, and it was a very long, uh, you know, um, a long article. But I think we really have the chance, or the the way this entertainment industry works, really gives the chance to really understand who, you know, the actors and singers and whatever um, entertainers are, and mm. they're also made as products. Mm. So they're also products in a way who sell their you know, songs or, you know, acting skills. And so I think this kind of dehuman dehumanization that we see and lack of respect of people in very, let's say, profit-driven environments, um, yeah, it impacts everyone. And maybe that's why I, you know, I wanted to do something of that kind. Yeah, see a shift towards um, like a different type of role model. Yeah. I mean, right? And um, did you like the short film? Yeah, yeah, no, I thought it was beautiful. Thanks. And it's, uh, and I mean, that's why I wanted to get into it because I mean, for for me, uh, like I mean, to do something like that, which is somewhat entirely removed from what you do on it's a so daily removed, basis, and it's like I I actually think I'm crazy because mm. it costs so much money. Mm. I really think I'm crazy, but I'm happy I, I did it. Yeah. For me, it would be my idea of like the perfect presentation of a collection actually to do maybe, a, I mean, a short movie with a form of narrative because, I mean, it just gives you so much, um, so many options to communicate, I mean, the values of the brand more so than just how the clothing looks, right? So, um, no, I, I thought it was great. And, um, I mean... I really look. I'm really looking forward to see the development of the brand in the in the next next. Uh, I mean, year or so, because it looks like it seems like you have a lot in the books. Yeah. A lot planned, and a lot of things are happening right now, which I must assume is it must be very nice after going out of a period with COVID. You know, with yeah. all of that uncertainty. But to be honest, we still have. Um, I mean, the things that happened during COVID uh, really impacted us. I mean, for I think for a lot of companies. I don't know if everyone talks about it or how impacted they were, but even if we got out of the confinements and all that, we're still, you know, like carrying this weight from what happened at this time. And I, I was so, um, you know, feeling so relieved that I had worked so hard to build the manufacture and, um, you know, balance it in a, in a way. And COVID was really hard, and we're still, you know, it's it's going to be a long time, I think. Uh, for a lot of companies to fully recover from that. Yeah, it's, it's going to take some time, for sure. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, we're running out of time. Okay. But, I mean, you have business to attend to as well. Uh, as you know, I'm very busy. <laughs> but uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. You Finally, too. we made it happen. And Thanks. I thought it was a great conversation. Me too. Uh, so, thank you very much for that. Thank you to you. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to know more about Debra or The Bonne Facture, head over to the Instagram at The Bonne Facture. Here you can catch up on current events as well as find all relevant info in regards to physical as well as online retailers. Our music is by composer Thomas Ross Fitzsimmons. He's based out of London and makes fantastic music for TV and film. If you want to listen to more of his work, check him out on Instagram at TRF Composer. Till next time, take care.